the fastest growing organization in the Catholic Church was the Jesuits, and they started out with just this rule about, we're gonna focus on education, get out of the monastery every day, and save souls. Whereas the other, let's say the Benedictines uh -huh. were probably the worst, they had a rule for everything. They had a rule for when you prayed, uh -huh. what spoon you used, what you wore <laughs> on your feet. All these different rules and that just ossified, but the Jesuits just had a couple of things, and they were very um, chameleon. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. Hi, I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and a Stanford professor. And this is the Friction Podcast. today's episode, we're joined by Stanford engineering professor Kathy Eisenhardt. Kathy is the co-author of Simple Rules, How to Thrive in a Complex World. She is one of the most influential researchers in the field of organizational strategy, and we have been colleagues for about 35 years. We asked Kathy to the podcast because the strategies she writes about in Simple Rules have many implications for the causes and cures of organizational friction. We tend to think of rules as limiting and restrictive, but Kathy's version of simple rules allows your team the space to explore and create efficiently and without driving one another crazy. I've been thinking about simple rules for a long time. And I first did a study of companies and whether or not they could develop products well. And we, we looked on the East Coast and we looked on the West Coast and we mm -hmm. looked in Europe and we found that, that companies that had too many rules were too efficient and kind of boring and could get out a bad product really fast, but not good products. Huh. And on the other hand, we looked on, we also found companies that had no rules at all and everybody just had this really great time being innovative, but they couldn't get our product out either. And so what we realized is it was, there was this middle place. Uh -huh. We used to joke, well, that must mean Chicago's the best place to be because the crazy <laughs> people were on the West uh -huh. and the uptight people were on the, in the East. But anyway, um, we started to see there was this middle. And so that got me interested in this idea of simple rules, this uh -huh. idea that you want some rules to kind of guide what you're doing, but if there's too much rule, you get stuck just doing the same old, same old. So simple rules are simple, which means there are, you know, three, four, five rules uh -huh. uh, and not more because otherwise then it's not simple. Simple rules are unique. They're unique to you. So uh, one of the examples I like is the, the Michael Pollan food rules. Eat mostly vegetables and fruits. Eat the only food that your, your grandmother would recognize, which means not processed foods. And he has one or two other rules. And I contrasted that at the same time as we were looking at Michael Pollan, uh -huh. I was doing some stuff with the football team here at Stanford. Uh -huh. Turns out the, the football team has simple rules too, but they're not the same. Uh -huh. So the simple rules of the football team are always eat breakfast, always stay hydrated, and then they have a rule, you can eat anything you want as long as you can pick it, pluck it, or kill it. Oh, that's pretty good. And so the idea was that that's why Simple Rules are unique, because the football team, a 20-year-old guy who has a lot of exercise, doesn't have the same rules, let's say, middle-aged people like you and me have. Bob. Right, right. So that's Simple Rules are simple, and Simple Rules are unique to you. So there's another part that really struck me in the book, which is, 
you're not talking about simple rules for simple situations. You're talking about simple rules for complex situations. Even this is a quote from your book, situations where unpredictable interactions among many moving parts happen. So, so to me, that's sort of the dream. The world is the mess. And this is the, this is you know, like my, my, my grandfather, he had a simple rule. Whenever it did, anybody committed any crime, he thought they should be shot. It was like, that was <laughs> just shoot him. He had the, there was no other punishment. It was actually, it was a simple rule, but I think it was overly simplistic. So yeah, so, maybe. So just when you hear about this from a simple rules perspective, let me start with kind of Rorschach test approach, then I'll start drilling in. Okay. What comes to mind? What's, what's your reaction about what simple rules brings to the table in some of the things that you and Don would recommend to get rid of destructive friction? Okay. I guess what we would see friction as being as a situation that's too complicated, too much going on, kind of like tax law. You know, like tax Perfect. law is like, oh my gosh, you know, this, and, and we, and, and, you know, our government is saying they made it simpler. It sure doesn't look simpler to me. Um, so tax law would be something where it's crazy um, and complex, and I don't know what's going on, and I hate alternative minimum, but I don't know if I actually even know what it is. And what simple rules would be would be mm -hmm. saying taking the tax code and just having it like five lines long. Or five pages. I mean, five pages would be... That would be great. And in fact, there's there's some data on that in countries where uh -huh. the tax code is very complicated, there's both a lot of people who don't pay taxes and there's a lot of cheating. And actually, you get more people paying their taxes and doing it correctly when your tax code's not too complicated. So that's like the perfect example to me of simple rules of something really complicated, but when you boil it down, oh yeah, it's, it's just these couple of ideas. Actually, in fact, this is kind of, it always struck me kind of uh -huh. funny on the book, is that our book was very popular on the Rand Paul network. Because? And I, because Rand Paul was into simplicity, simple oh, government, simple oh. ideas. So I never thought of myself as a Rand Paul kind of girl, but um, <laughs> Rand Paul's network was into us. Um, so libertarians like simple rules. Well, I like do. simple rules too. I'm not a libertarian. I was having a conversation with, uh, let's just say, a, a, an unnamed famous academic leader, okay? Because okay. if I name this person, I will get in trouble. And this person said to me, um, I'm fatalistic. I was complaining about the rules at this particular large in academic institution. This is, this is an administrator? Yes. Yeah. She's a very capable person. And this person said to me, um, well, I'm going to try to reduce the friction, but I'm actually kind of fatalistic because... I really believe that as systems get older, larger, and more complex, they're just going to get more bureaucratic and things are going to get harder and harder to do. And you can reduce the pain some, but as organizations get big and old, they're just going to get worse and worse. Hmm. You believe that? Do I believe that? I think that is the natural course. But I also think you can you can stop the natural course. So if you don't do anything, you don't intervene, Ooh, it's probably true that we all just get... Well, it's kind of like health. You know, you get older and you get older and your body gets worse <laughs> and whatever. But if you, if you actually step in and start exercising and get going, you can, you can change or at least slow the pace. So I think that's true of organizations. So when I think of institutions that have just survived, 
The Catholic Church, is, we can calculate it pretty precisely, this is 2018, so yeah, it's 2,000 yeah. years old, and they've had 150 uh, senior executive changes or so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so maybe they're doing something right, despite there's problems. Yes, despite the problems. Can you, can you think of any more, uh, well, uh, I don't know, non-religious organizations that have done a good job of reinventing themselves? I'd say Johnson & Johnson. How about Johnson & Johnson? Ooh. I think the key at Johnson & Johnson Ooh. was what Hewlett-Packard used to do, Ooh. which was lots of small businesses that were run pretty entrepreneurially. So cutting Ooh. their business units into lots of small, similar business units and then giving people opportunities to run them. Uh, so you had your own little mini business, and if it didn't work out, you kind of get rid of it. And if it uh -huh. does work out, maybe you split it apart. But that idea that was the old Hewlett-Packard model of lots of little businesses all about the same right. size, very entrepreneurial, was a way of refreshing things. And so you had more opportunities for people to get their first shot running things than you do in most organizations. Oh, that's interesting. You, you know, that the organization that you make me think of, which uh, could be controversial, but that they've got world dominance is McDonald's. They, they, they have a lot of constraints, but they actually um, allow a lot of individual autonomy country by country. Uh -huh. Yeah, and that's actually true. Another comparison uh, besides them is, is the Uber versus Lyft comparison, that Uber has historically given their city managers mm -hmm. a lot more room to run than at least Lyft did early on. And because you know, they actually they started out with what? Lyft was actually the first right. mover. So I think that that idea of of giving people space to do things until the point you give them too much and you got to reel them back in. So you got to reel them back in because maybe that's part of the the cultural issues at Uber. And speaking of the Catholic Church, and and you probably saw that in Symbol Rules, that was the Jesuits. You know the fast. Oh, the Jesuits. Oh, you had the Jesuits versus the Benedictines. Yeah. Oh, talk about that. Oh, that's a great example. Was this, it was is the fastest growing organization in the Catholic Church, which was the Jesuits, and they started out with. Just this rule about we're going to focus on education, get out of the monastery every day, and save souls. Whereas the other, let's say the Benedictines uh -huh. are probably the worst, they had a rule for everything. They had a rule for when you prayed, uh -huh. what spoon you used, what you wore <laughs> on your feet. All these different rules and that just ossified. But the Jesuits just had a couple of things, and they were very um, chameleon. And so in Japan, they hobnobbed with the shoguns, uh -huh. but in China, they hung out with the peasants. So they could be different people depending upon where they were. Oh, that's really cool. I, and ironically, in Scaling Up Excellence, we, we talk about Catholicism versus Buddhism. Uh -huh. And we talk about um, Catholicism as being standardized, and we talk about Buddhism as being not. But essentially, uh, this is a case where... The Benedictines, well, they were they were Catholic by our language. The, <laughs> the, the Jesuits, Jesuits were, were Buddhists. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. In fact, there are, now there are Buddhist Catholics. So you can, well, that's that's the beauty of Buddhism. You can be and kind of anything. Anything you want to be, yeah. Another kind of rule I really thought were interesting, these timing rules. Yes. So tell us what a timing rule is and, and how they can, because those to me seem like classic friction fighters. Yeah, yeah, timing rules. Well, there's, there's a couple of kinds of timing rules, but the simple timing rule is just being in a rhythm. Uh, so like for a while, Uber was in a rhythm of opening two cities a week. Right. 
And why that works, I mean, I don't know whether it should have been two or should have been five or one or whatever, uh-huh. but why why timing rules work is they let people who have to coordinate coordinate more easily. So if, if we know that huh. we're going to do two cities next month, then we start to realize, oh, we got to do this in week one and that in week two. And yeah, you know, so we sort of organize ourselves. In fact, I first got this idea because I was sitting on a plane coming back from Paris, mm-hmm. back to here to California. And as you know, it's, you know, it's like a 12-hour flight. Right. And so I had this seatmate this particular time, and his name was Dirk, and he was a race car driver. Not kidding. That, wow. was, that was true. <laughs> but he told me about racing. And he said, when you're doing, when you're race car driving, you don't drive as fast as you can. You drive at a constant rhythm. Uh So you don't wear out your car. You don't wear out yourself. And your pit crew knows when you're going to show up. And so that's the same with it with timing rules is it lets you coordinate people. It also puts you in a rhythm and, and, you know, we all know rhythm as as people, you know, like a dance rhythm or or like I was just skiing last week, Uh kind of a ski rhythm that, you know, you kind of, when you're in a rhythm, you feel more focused and more motivated and, and more effective. Well, organizations can be in rhythms too. And so if I know that I've got to ship a product every six months or I'm entering two cities a month or something, the organization can get into a rhythm. And so I think be more productive, more focused. We can organize ourselves better. We know what's going to happen. And so I think those, those, those kind of rhythm rules are really, they're kind of subtle, but they're Pretty powerful. That, so, so that that is that's a really interesting example, and and so one of the jokes that Huggy would tell was that uh, maybe one of the reasons that universities have existed for so many centuries and everything else dies is we're all locked in these quarter and semester <laughs> systems, and and that's what keeps all the all of us crazy, you because know, that's the students, the administrators, the faculty. We we all, so we all know that the rhythm, yeah, because because we we know the day after graduation the campus is going to be completely empty and nobody's going to be here. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's right. We're all we're all on our lockstep rhythm, and maybe so. Maybe it's the only thing that saved us. Um, well, you met, in the book you mentioned uh, Pixar, which I'm not sure they still do this, uh, but you mentioned the notion yeah. that for a long time on the rhythm of one movie a year, mm-hmm. and if they show you the workforce, they've, they've got seven movies going, mm-hmm. but because there's one a year, they actually know how to staff every single movie from three people in a room coming up with the yeah. concept to the next release has 700 people working on it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and Pixar is really cool because they essentially created a movie factory. Yep. It says we always think of a factory. You know, I think our mind of a factory is, you know, you know, potato chips, you know, coming out, potato chip, potato chip, you know, like really fast. And they moved, they created a factory of a movie that comes out once a year. But it was a factory. It was like at this time, these you know, we're at this point in the process, and it's four. It's a four-year process. Mm-hmm. It actually takes four years to do a movie. You know, at this point in the process, it's three people in a room. At this point in the process, it's twenty designers, and they've got it synchronized, like like an assembly line. Like it takes a certain amount of time, a certain amount of people, and then it goes to the next part. Even though it's a very creative process, it is interesting because yeah. one one of the advantages of that. When you talk about having a system and having that kind of cadence, is you actually know when something's wrong, because for oh, yeah. if, for example, if uh, the dailies are really bad mm-hmm. and it's early on, that's fine. But if the dailies are really bad and you're six months from release, it's really a problem because yeah. because every they're all sort of on the same the same rhythm. So you've got a magic wand, okay? Okay. And uh, 
by this point, with your years of experience in research, you've looked at a lot of different companies. Mm -hmm. And if you could do one thing to every organization, if you make one thing harder to do to increase friction in every organization, what would you do? What, what would you make it more difficult for people to do? More difficult for people to do? Well, I know that in some of the companies that I work with, they don't understand sometimes basic economics, particularly Ooh. when you get into economics. When you get into ecosystems and platforms, those are fairly complicated business models. Uh-huh. And so I guess I would make it harder, harder maybe to move ahead on those businesses without making people really think through the economics of it. Mm. Because people miss the economics and they go too fast, they think they understand, and they kind of get this big get big fast mentality. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard that term. And they really should stop and think more about the underlying economics of what they're trying to do. This one company, they were doing um, in-home cooking for travelers. So, you know, you go to Asia and okay. you want to get a home-cooked meal and an authentic experience in, I don't know, Luang Prabang or, or Ubud or somewhere like that. And so, you you know, this company would, would hook you up as the traveler with a, a home-cooked meal by, by a local. Mm -hmm. And there's actually there were actually two companies. One started in one part of the world, one started in the other. And one company kind of got it, but the company that, that didn't, they were always rushing around trying to match buyers and suppliers, and they started actually worrying more about the buyers, the, the eaters, because when you when you do a meal, you usually have five or six people eating it, but mm -hmm. you only need one person cooking it. So, well, we got to get more people. And that reasoning works for a steady-state platform where you're trying to balance supply and demand. Mm -hmm. But when you're starting, which is a different thing, you actually want to focus on the hosts huh. and you get the hosts right, get them trained, get it going, and then you go to the guests. And so they were in this constant chaos of trying to match hosts with guests, but they were always out of balance and, didn't, and, never, and, never, and they went out of business. This other one understood, thought more about what the economics of platforms really is, which was, was really fundamentally driven by supply. And so they really got supply. Mm -hmm. they, spent, they spent a fair amount of time really learning supply, who's a host for us, what makes for a good host. And obviously good cooking is one aspect of it. But it turns out good storytelling is also because right. it's, an, it's entertainment. It's not just food. That is actually interesting because if you think about the Airbnb story, I mean, that's one thing they've been, they really work the hosts harder mm -hmm. than, um, than attracting, well, attracting the guests because they figured if they got that right, the re then the, the, rest the, the people would come. Um, so you've still got your magic wand in your hand. <laughs> okay. And, and, uh, and, and so you want to, in the organizations that you've studied and worked with and executives you met over the years, uh, you want to take a magic wand and make one thing easier, one thing to get rid of the friction. One thing, one thing easier for people. I'd say uh, that they should have a certain time of day where they shut off their devices. Oh. That their life, that their life would be a lot easier if it, at a certain point in the evening, I'm done with my devices, and you just check out. I think that's the thing that I'd tell them that they should do. Well, that's and, pretty... that's, and that's across the board, and I think they'll be more relaxed, more focused, and they'll have that, that real joy that you have when you come back to your device and you see a problem, you see people talking about it, and then it goes away and you didn't have to deal with it. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, my, my wife Marina has a rule that she uses, which she will break in the case of an emergency. But her rule is that uh, with her staff at the, at the Girl Scouts, mm -hmm. that although she actually writes emails over the weekend, 
And at night, she doesn't, she only sends them during regular working hours. Uh -huh. I actually do that too, because I don't want people to feel stressed out, excessively stressed out. So, so I, that's one thing I actually have to work on. But I, I liked your simple rule. I think we, we all should follow it. And literally the world would be a better place. If, oh, if I you... think so, <laughs> yes. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on the Friction Podcast. As usual, you've been, uh, well, charming and came up with uh, delightfully weird and interesting examples. Okay, well, thank you, Bob. It was fun to do. Too many rules can stifle your organization, but too few are even worse. The main thing I take from Kathy's episode is that having a set of simple guidelines for you and your team to follow not only allows employees to streamline their workflow, but can help reduce the amount of friction and frustration in your organization. Please spread the word about the Friction Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues, your family, and even your therapists. On the next episode, we will be joined by Jeff Pfeffer, who's a Stanford Business School professor and author of Dying for a Paycheck. We're going to discuss the implications of his research on how workplaces where friction, frustration, and fatigue are rampant can have a negative effect on employee health and well-being and what employers can do to mitigate this growing public health crisis. And now for the final tangent. You talked about stopping rules. Uh -huh. This is maybe kind of a grim example, but one of the leaders of the expedition on uh, to Mount Everest where mm -hmm. a large number of people died, it was in the mid-90s. I remember that they got stuck on the mountain too late. Stuck on the mountain too late. Well, they had the guide, who, he, he had a rule for his guiding and he had guided lots and lots of tours up there was if you're not on the top by two o'clock, turn around. So that was a stopping rule. If we're not at the top, we're done. Uh -huh. uh, turn it around. Well, that was the day he didn't follow the rule. And they weren't, and the last people were on the top of the mountain at four in the afternoon. And, you know, it started out as a beautiful day and it ended up as a really bad day. And a lot of people didn't get back. And so that's a stopping rule. That's the value, that's, I don't know, maybe an extreme example of a stopping rule. But a rule that's that's saying, you know, wait a minute, we've put enough into this, whether it's climbing on Everest or a bad boyfriend or the sales call that's never going to happen. People are very good at choosing something like picking a stock or picking something, but they're very bad at saying, that was a really bad choice. It's time to end it. We can't do this without you. Tell us what's driving you crazy and what are you doing to make life better in your organization for yourself and for the people that you work with. Please send us your friction stories, tips, and tricks. We'd love to hear from you via Twitter at eCorner, or please send us an email at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Designing Organizational Change. Friction is produced by Rachel Jilkowski and Ali Rico. Jake Smith and Stife Studios are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen and Victoria Johnson are our writing and marketing team. Danielle Stussy is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks for joining us. This is the Friction Podcast. Friction.